Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm on. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? Yeah, right, uh, when that baby light, there's no doubt about it. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 157 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 7, The Flight, Part 2. We left off last week about mid-flight, after the fifth day. I hope you recall that there was a weather situation developing. The low-pressure area from last week had turned into Hurricane Gladys. NASA was keeping a close eye on Hurricane, though it appeared that it would hit full force on the Mississippi and Alabama coastline, not Houston. But NASA still developed contingency plans for mission control if Hurricane Gladys did hit Houston. Meanwhile, the hurricane did provide a unique photo opportunity for the astronauts of Apollo 7. Wally Sherall continued to make life difficult for mission control, and by the seventh day of the mission, both Chris Kraft and Deke Slayton were involved full-time arguing with Wally over an unsuited re-entry. Sherall had been taking his shots freely at the controllers, but now he had started taking his shots at Kraft and Slayton. With a head cold, ear blockage during re-entry would be annoying at best and at worst, painful and potentially disabling. If the astronauts re-entered without their helmets, they could pinch their nose and blow to try and clear the ear blockage. This is the technique used to clear ears when descending in an aircraft. The designers, however, press for a suited re-entry in case of a sudden loss of cabin pressure. It was one of the classic risk trade-offs that occurred during a mission, but this time the argument was going public. Two days before re-entry, after a series of flight plan updates, the mild-mannered Isley got into the act and complained about a flight plan maneuver update. Quote, I want to talk to the man, or whoever it was, that thought up that little gem. That one really got us. End quote. When Jack Swigert, the Capcom, one of the fifth class of astronauts selected in 1966, responded, quote, Okay, Don. End quote. Chirral cut in and said, 
quote, I have had it up to here today, and from now on, I'm going to be an on-board flight director for these updates. We are not going to accept any new games like adding 50 feet to the velocity for a maneuver or doing some crazy test we never heard of. End quote. Flight director Glenn Lunny had had enough, too. In his log, he wrote, Refer to the crew's voice transcript. I can't stand to write it down. I have finally had enough of this crew. End quote. In the final days of the mission, the control teams, Capcoms, and flight directors covering for Wally felt like embarrassed parents of a kid throwing a tantrum. At crew wake up on his final shift, flight director Griffin, as a joke, threatened to keep the astronauts up another four days to equal the American space flight duration record set during Gemini. The crew, of course, vetoed the idea, and then Griffin handed them over to Lunny to bring them home after 11 days. But before we bring the Apollo 7 crew back home, I want to talk a little bit about how the spacecraft performed. First, the windows. Visibility from the spacecraft windows ranged from poor to good during the mission. Shortly after the launch escape tower jettisoned, two of the windows had soot deposits and two others had water condensation. Two days later, however, Cunningham reported that most of the windows were in fairly good shape, although moisture was collecting between the inner panes of one window. On the seventh day, Sherall described essentially the same conditions. Even with these impediments, the windows were adequate. Those used for observations during rendezvous and station keeping with the S-4B remained almost clear. Navigational sighting with a telescope and a sextant on any of these 37 pre-selected Apollo stars was difficult if done too soon after a wastewater dump. Sometimes the astronauts had to wait several minutes for the frozen particles to disperse. Isley reported that unless he could see at least 40 or 50 stars at a time, he found it hard to decide what part of the sky he was looking toward. On the whole, however, the windows were satisfactory for general and landmark observations and for out-the-window photography. Moving on to the fuel cells. Occasionally, one of the three fuel cells supplying electricity to the craft developed some unwanted high temperatures, but load-sharing hookups among the cells prevented any shortage. The crew complained about the noisy fans in the environmental circuits and turned one of them off. That did not help much, so the men switched off the other. The cabin stayed comfortable, although the coolant lines sweated and water collected in little puddles on the deck, which the crew expected after the test conducted in the altitude chamber. Chiral's crew vacuumed the excess water out into space with the urine dump hose. There was an assortment of minor hardware problems during the flight, 
These included the drinking water hose trigger sticking during the final two days, a momentary undervolt of the main AC buses caused by the automatic cryo fan switch in the service module liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen tanks, and a loss of telemetry due to a malfunctioning electrical commutator following service module jettison at the end of the mission, meaning that the final 15 minutes of data transmission was lost. Aside from the last event, which remained a mystery despite post-flight testing of the commutator, all of the problems on Apollo 7 were quickly resolved, and some of them also involved equipment or procedures that would not be used on subsequent mission. What about life inside the Apollo capsule? Well, the astronauts finally had a spacecraft large enough to move about in. During Gemini, crewmen had gone outside the craft in an exercise called extravehicular activity, or EVA. In Apollo, quite naturally, the abbreviation became IVA, for intravehicular activity. The crew adapted easily to this new free-floating realm. Sherall said, quote, All the problems we worried about, the spacecraft picking up motions from the crew, no such thing. You can get to be quite a gymnast, end quote. And Cunningham later added, quote, The work is almost zero, and you can move any place you want to very freely, and you certainly don't need strong handholds to take care of it, end quote. The crew found exercise was important. At first, when the men slept in the couches, their bodies curled up into the fetal position, which gave them lower back and abdominal pains. So they almost raced each other for a workout on a stretching device called an exergenie, which relaxed their cramped and aching muscles. But in general, the crew slept well enough. Sherall complained about round-the-clock operations that disrupted the normal earthbound routine. Sleep periods might start as early as 4 in the afternoon or as late as 4 in the morning. Slayton suggested that all three astronauts sleep at the same time, but Sherall said the machine was flying well and he did not want to make any changes. So Isley kept watch while the others slept, and then he went to bed. Two sleeping bags were underneath the outboard couches. The center couch could be moved out of the way, and the crewmen could zip themselves into them, wearing their flight coveralls. The bags were not popular because they said the restraints were in the wrong places. Cunningham preferred sleeping in the couch, strapping himself down with a shoulder harness and a lap belt. If two crewmen slept in the couches at the same time, however, one of them was always in the way of spacecraft operations. After the third day, the crew had worked out a routine that allowed all of them to get enough sleep. What about the food in space? Apollo promised the best food preparation yet in a manned spacecraft. For the first time, astronauts had both hot and cold water to prepare meals with. 
The food came in freeze-dried, vacuum-packed that would be injected with water or else eaten dry, followed by a sip of water. And Wally Sherall, who had only toothpaste-like tubes for food on his Mercury flight, described the food as, quote, Still does not match home cooking, but it comes a lot closer than space food used to, end quote. Thirty-three meals were provided for the three crewmen, allowing them three meals a day for each of the eleven days in space. They had more than sixty food items to choose from, giving them about 2,500 calories a day. But, in general, they were not happy with their food. The bite-sized food crumbled and the stray particles floated around the cabin. They almost came to hate the high-energy sweets and tried to talk each other out of the more satisfactory breakfast items. Following his Gemini flight, Sherall had said that if he flew on Apollo, he was going to take some coffee with him, and he did. During the flight and later, the crew emphasized that space food was a long way from satisfying their normal table habits. They also complained that there was more food than they could eat and that most of it was too sweet. Although the menus had been prepared based on the astronauts' personal preferences. Well, if food is being eaten, there must be a way to take care of the waste byproduct. The waste management system for collecting solid body waste was adequate, though annoying. The defecation bags containing a germicide to prevent bacteria and gas formation were easily sealed and stored in empty food containers in the equipment bay. But the bags were certainly not convenient, and there were usually unpleasant odors. Each time they were used, it took the crew member from 45 to 60 minutes, causing him to postpone as long as possible, waiting for a time when there was no work to do. The crew had a total of only 12 defecations over a period of nearly 11 days. Urination was much easier, as the crew did not have to remove clothing. There was a collection system for both the pressure suits and the in-flight coveralls. Both devices could be attached to the urine dump hose and emptied into space. They had half expected the hose valve to freeze up in the vacuum, but it never did. Okay, I think we're ready to move on to re-entry. Chirol was determined to conduct re-entry with his helmet off, which was contrary to previous Project Mercury and Gemini experience. With their helmets off, a sudden loss of cabin pressure would likely kill the astronauts but the astronauts believed that their eardrums might burst due to the sinus pressure from their colds, and they wanted to be able to pinch their noses and blow to equalize the pressure as it increased during re-entry. This may have worked for Mercury or Gemini helmets, because they had a visor, but the new Apollo helmets were a continuous fishbowl type without a movable visor. 
Over the course of the mission, NASA repeatedly instructed Sherall that the helmets should be worn for safety reasons. In the final exchange on the subject, Mission Control made it clear to Sherall that he would be expected to account for openly disregarding instructions. This is a transcript of the conversation between Deke Slayton, Capcom No. 1, and Wally Sherall. Capcom Okay, I think you ought to clearly understand there is absolutely no experience at all with landing without the helmet on. Sherall And there's no experience with the helmet either on that one. Capcom That one we've got a lot of experience with. Yes. Sherall If we had an open visor, I might go along with that. Capcom Okay. I guess you better be prepared to discuss in some detail when we land why we haven't got them on. I think you're too late to do much about it now. Sherall, that's affirmative. I don't think anybody down there has worn the helmets as much as we have. Capcom, yes. Sherall, we tried them on this morning. Capcom, understand that. The only thing we're concerned about is the landing. We couldn't care less about the reentry. But it's your neck, and I hope you don't break it. Sherall, thanks, babe. Capcom, over and out. Slayton did his best to persuade the astronauts to wear the helmets, but Sherall was adamant. The crew each took a decongestant pill about an hour before reentry and made it through the acceleration zone without any problems with their ears. Here's the reentry clip. On October 22nd, 259 hours and 39 minutes after liftoff, the service propulsion system performs retrofire, and the faithful okay, service module separates from the command module bearing the crew. Apollo 7 re-enters across the southern United States, a glowing fireball. Its parachutes carry it to the primary recovery area in the ocean east of Florida. It comes to rest floating apex down in the condition known as stable two. The crew uprights it with special flotation bags that are carried just for that purpose. This is the actual Apollo 7 recovery. A basket ride to the waiting helicopter and then to the carrier Essex for a hero's welcome. When word of the safe recovery gets back to Houston, the traditional cigars turn mission control into a smoke-filled room. The splashdown point was 200 nautical miles south-southwest of Bermuda and 7 nautical miles north of the recovery ship USS Essex. Despite the difficulties between the crew and mission control, the mission successfully met its objectives to verify the Apollo Command and Service Module's flightworthiness, allowing Apollo 8's flight to the moon to proceed just two months later. Only 26 discrepancies were detected in the flight. Over half were related to the instruments and communications. This was America's second longest manned spaceflight, and the Command and Service Module checked out beautifully. Apollo 7 was Project Apollo's only human spaceflight mission to launch from
from Cape Kennedy Air Force Station Launch Complex 34. All subsequent Apollo and Skylab spacecraft flights, including Apollo Soyuz, were launched from Launch Complex 39 at the nearby Kennedy Space Center. Launch Complex 34 was declared redundant and decommissioned in 1969, making Apollo 7 the last human spaceflight mission to launch from the Cape Air Force Station in the 20th century. Apollo 7 was of high national interest. A special edition of NASA's news clipping collection called Current News included front-page stories from 32 major newspapers scattered over the length and breadth of the nation. Although the post-mission celebrations may not have rivaled those for the first orbital flight of an American, John Glenn, in 1962, enthusiasm was high, and this fervor would build to even greater heights each time the first lunar landing drew one step closer. After the mission, NASA awarded Sherall, Isley, and Cunningham its Exceptional Service Medal in recognition of their success. On November 2, 1968, President Lyndon Johnson held a ceremony at the LBJ Ranch in Johnson City, Texas to present the astronauts with the medals. He also presented NASA's highest honor, the Distinguished Service Medal, to recently retired NASA Administrator James Webb for his outstanding leadership of America's space program since the beginning of Apollo. Here's a clip from the ceremony. Captain Sherrard, Colonel Isley, and Mr. Cunningham, your flight in the new Apollo spacecraft was one of the most successful space missions that's ever been undertaken. By this country, or by any other country. And we just don't see how you could have done any better. I am told that you accomplished as many mission objectives, 56 of them, in this one flight as were accomplished in the first five manned flights of the Gemini spacecraft. You logged the most man hours ever in a single flight mission more than 780 hours. This, incidentally, is more man-hours than have been logged in all the Soviet manned flights to date. They still lead us only in woman-hours in space. <laughs> For nearly 11 days, much longer than is required to go to the moon and back, you operated this complex new spacecraft without a failure in any major system. In short, you prove beyond doubt that you were flying the world's most advanced and most versatile manned space vehicle. And I want to pay tribute here, too, to our private enterprise system and the industry that made that possible, as well as the scientists who provided that great leadership. You prove that the United States today leads in space accomplishment. This is not important as either a game or a contest. But it is important because the United States of America must be first in technology if it is to continue its position in the world. 
Chirral, Isley, and Cunningham were the only crew of all the Apollo, Skylab, and Apollo Soyuz test project missions who had not been awarded the Distinguished Service Medal immediately following their mission. Though Chirral had received the medal twice before for his Mercury and Gemini missions. Therefore, NASA Administrator Michael D. Griffin decided to belatedly award the medals to the crew in October of 2008 for exemplary performance in meeting all the Apollo 7 mission objectives and more on the first manned Apollo mission, paving the way for the first flight to the moon on Apollo 8 and the first manned lunar landing on Apollo 11. Only Cunningham was still alive at the time. Isley's widow accepted his medal, and Apollo 8 crew member Bill Anders accepted Chirral's. Other Apollo astronauts, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Alan Bean, were present at the award ceremony. Former flight director Christopher C. Kraft, Jr., who had been in conflict with the crew during the mission, sent a conciliatory video message of congratulations, saying, quote, We gave you a hard time once, but you certainly survived that and have done extremely well since. I am frankly very proud to call you a friend. End quote. This was in stark contrast to what Kraft's opinion immediately after the flight was. At that time, in October of 1968, Kraft told Deke Slayton that the crew should never fly again due to the insubordination they demonstrated. With Chirral, that was not a problem because he was retiring. And with Slayton's support, both Isley and Cunningham never flew in space again. Shortly after the flight, the capsule was returned to North American for analysis. Here's the clip. It's about one month after liftoff, and this is the Apollo 7 command module. It's back now at its birthplace, the Space Division of North American Rockwell at Downey, California. And the men who built it are now performing an autopsy. Last night, they removed the main heat shield, the aft heat shield down here that protected the structure against the temperature of re-entry, and the structure down here has now been exposed. You can see there's some corrosion here. That's, that's from the ocean at the end of the ride. The Apollo has suffered a sea change. The heat shield itself has been moved to another position for examination. The outside surface, of course, is black and charred. It uh, had a temperature of more than 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Looks a bit like a mistake on my barbecue. As a matter of fact, in places, this structure is no thicker than a good hunk of sirloin. But the internal structure, still essentially intact. Here on the spacecraft, this mylar covering is the original. It rode all the way through the mission, all the way down through re-entry. And the nozzles of the attitude control jets are in almost such perfect condition. Well, in principle, they could be used again. Inside the spacecraft, quite a bit of the equipment has been removed, but you can still see the display panel in the Cunningham position. And of course, the findings from all of this are still being sifted. But as of yesterday, NASA announced that on the basis of the spectacular success of Apollo 7 and together with the confidence in the overall Apollo system, it would be possible now for the next mission, that's Apollo 8, to plan as its ultimate goal 
having three Americans in orbit around the moon on Christmas. And considering that this is only the second manned flight of Apollo, that's an impressive vote of confidence. Since we filmed the first entry in this log, the Earth has rotated 33 times on its axis, although Shara and his crew saw roughly 165 orbital sunrises and sunsets, so that puts them well ahead of the rest of us. The wheel of American politics has turned its Republican face to the world. The Soviet Union has stepped up its space program, which indicates that the moon race may yet hold a few surprises. And oh yes, Jackie and Onassis captured the headlines for a few days. There's been change, progress, movement, now. And it's all symbolized by this oh, perhaps odd-looking but supremely efficient mechanism. So ready or not, moon, here we come. Shortly after Apollo 7, Associate Administrator Homer Newell was interviewed about Apollo. We're in the office of Dr. Homer Newell, Associate Administrator of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Does the Apollo experience open up any new avenues of technological spin-off from the space activities into other kinds of technological activities? Yes, I think it does. And in fact, although we often use the shorthand of saying we're going to get men to the moon and land them and bring them back safely as the objective of the Apollo program, in reality, the long-range objective is to stimulate the development of technology. And if you think a bit about it, you see that you have to solve problems in structures, in energy use, batteries, power supplies, the handling of information, the protection of men, the development of new environments under which to operate. You name the discipline, and it's almost certain that it has to be tackled at its very frontier in the Apollo program. And this just infuses into our ability to do other things on Earth. And I should emphasize in concluding that the ability to manage large-scale projects like this is going to be important in tackling problems of pollution, transportation, our cities, the food problem, and so on. Do you think the medical experiences of the astronauts will help us solve the common cold problem? Well, it certainly has highlighted the need for some attention to the problem. Thank you very much, Dr. Newell. My pleasure. After the mission, the crew of Apollo 7 received some media attention. On November 6, 1968, comedian Bob Hope broadcast one of his variety television specials from NASA's Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston to honor the Apollo 7 crew. Barbara Eden, star of the popular comedy series I Dream of Jeannie, which featured two fictional astronauts among its regular characters, appeared with Sherall, Isley, and Cunningham. Sherall parlayed the head cold he contracted during the Apollo 7 mission into a television advertising contract as a spokesman for Actifed, an over-the-counter version of the medicine he took in space. The Apollo 7 mission has been dramatized in the 1998 miniseries From the Earth to the Moon. Mark Harmon played Walter Sherall, John Meese, as Isley and Frederick Laney as Cunningham, and Max Wright as Gunter Vint. As of 2016, Cunningham is the only surviving member of the crew. 
Isley died in 1987 and Sherall in 2007. The Apollo 7 spacecraft is now located at the Frontiers of Flight Museum in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.